amen, amen, amen. Praise the Lord. Well, turn your Bibles, if you will, tonight to Mark chapter 9. I've got something I want to share with you that I believe is of utmost importance. Something the Lord reminded me of this afternoon, and I've been meditating on it and dwelling on it ever since. Praise the Lord. Mark chapter 9 tells us that when Jesus came to his disciples from the mountain of transfiguration, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. That's always a bad thing. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnashes with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. And Jesus answered him. Notice Jesus didn't answer the disciples. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, brought the son unto Jesus. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tore him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And Jesus asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Since he was a child. And oftentimes it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, notice that, uh, that the situation is such that we don't know exactly the condition that this boy has. But apparently he has some kind of spells, some kind of fits that, uh, uh, that are life-threatening. They uh, occur in situations where he's cast into the fire, and that would certainly ruin your day. Same thing about being cast into the water and so forth to destroy him. So whatever the condition is, it's something that you would expect that the father has sought whatever medical help or whatever help anybody else could give him. Uh, I'm assuming that just because the father cares about his son. I know I'd do that with my kids, wouldn't you? And, uh, and the father comes to the place where the disciples are, and the disciples couldn't, couldn't do anything about him, couldn't do anything about the situation. Now, we could look at other scriptures, but I'm sure you already are aware of them. Where the Bible tells us that Jesus has already delivered to his disciples authority to cast out devils. They have authority to deal with this situation. But for, what, for some reason, unknown to them, not to Jesus, but unknown to them, for some reason it's not, uh, they weren't able to make it work. And so the man, you could well understand if you were in his position, now he's even more discouraged than ever. First he hears about Jesus apparently. Brings his son to where Jesus is and Jesus isn't there. That'd be a downer on its own. But then he gets to the disciples and I'm sure the disciples say, well, we can take care of this. Jesus doesn't have to be here. We can take care of this. We've been casting devils out all around the countryside. And so they try and fail. Well, now he's, that's strike two. He's even more discouraged, I'm sure. But good news, Jesus comes walking up has a conversation about with the father about the boy. And then it, this uh, spell or this fit comes upon the son. Jesus asked a simple question. He said, how long has it been since he's been this way? He said, well, he's been this way since he was a child. That doesn't necessarily mean since birth, but we would assume that that means since he was young. And then the father speaks up and says, your disciples tried and failed and they couldn't do anything about it. But here's the, here's the important issue. Here's the place where the father's at. He said, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, folks, I want to tell you something. I want to talk to you tonight about believing for the impossible. 
many people, maybe most people, miss it when it comes to receiving from God, especially in what are perceived to be impossible situations. I'm using the title loosely because with God, nothing's impossible. You know that, don't you? At least we know that mentally. I think there's a difference between knowing it in our hearts and knowing that it's written in the Bible that way. But it really is true. If it's in the Bible, if it's God's word, then it has to be true. Amen? So I use that title loosely. But when it comes to believing for things that we perceive to be impossible, here's where most people miss it. They do the same thing that the father of the, of the boy did. They're looking for what Jesus can do. His question is, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Can you do anything? Now, folks, Jesus was the Son of God here on the earth, manifest here on the earth. He had the Spirit without measure, which means he had the fullness of the Holy Ghost operating in him, which means he had the fullness of God's power in operation or available at any given time. There was no other operation of the Holy Ghost in the earth outside of what uh, John the Baptist was anointed to do other than that which was upon Jesus and what he delegated to his disciples, first the 12 and then the 70. There was no other operation of the Holy Ghost that we have record of on the whole earth. So Jesus has all the power of God that there is. And the man questions Jesus' ability. He said, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now you'd think that Jesus, being the Son of God, as most of the church world seems to think that Jesus healed because he was the son of God or to prove that he was the son of God, you would think that if that was the case, then Jesus would have answered and said, boy, this is your lucky day because I am the guy. I am the son of God. I have the spirit of God without measure. There's nothing that I can't do. But that's not what he said. Jesus did not accept the responsibility for the boy's healing or deliverance. I'll use those terms interchangeably. And I think you'll understand why. But Jesus did not accept responsibility for the boy's deliverance based on what he could do. Jesus turns it around and says, what I can do is not the question. Notice verse 23. King James is a little bit blind to us on this. But Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. In other words, Jesus is saying it's not a matter of what I can do. The question is not what can I do. The question is what can you believe? What can you believe? If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Now, isn't it interesting, as I said, that most of the church world thinks that Jesus healed because he was the son of God and or to prove that he was the son of God. But Jesus rarely identified himself as the Son of God. There are 65 times in the Bible that Jesus identifies himself as either the Son of Man or the Son of God. Sixty of them say that he identifies as the Son of Man. In other words, as a man who had authority on the earth. Sure, he was anointed of the Holy Ghost. He said so. He preached that. But he said also that the works that he did, the miracles, the healings, and the signs and the wonders that he did, he didn't do of himself. Well, that has to mean, mean then that he didn't do them because he was the son of God. Only five times out of the 65 
where Jesus identifies himself as either the Son of Man or the Son of God. Does he identify himself as the Son of God? And three of those are in the same instance at the same time. What's the point? The point is that Jesus emptied himself of the heavenly power and glory that he had with the Father before the earth began. He came to the earth as a man. He couldn't have emptied himself of of being who he was, the Son of God. Well, then what did he empty himself of? His heavenly power and glory. That means that before he was anointed of the Holy Ghost, he was operating as a human being just like you and me. He had no more power as a human being than you and I would have or than anybody would have. But then the anointing of the Holy Ghost came upon him. He was baptized by John in the Jordan River and immediately began preaching that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor and to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. That's when the signs and the wonders began to happen, when the anointing of God came upon him. Well, isn't Jesus anointed here in Mark chapter 9? Sure he is. But that anointing didn't work indiscriminately or at Jesus' will. If it had, then it would have worked in Nazareth. The Bible says in Luke chapter 4 and Mark chapter 6 that in his own hometown of Nazareth, he could there do no mighty works. Couldn't do any signs and wonders. Doesn't say he wouldn't. He says he couldn't. Well, if Jesus was the son of God, how come he couldn't do the work? How come he couldn't do miracles in Nazareth? If you want to do anything, want to make it good anywhere, you'd want to make it good in your own hometown, wouldn't you? But it says he could there, Mark 6, 5, he could there do no mighty work, save or accept that he laid his hands upon a few sickly folks, a few folks with minor ailments, uh, as defined in Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words. A few folks with minor ailments, and he got them healed. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. Now put those two things together. In Nazareth... He was not able to do any mighty works even though he was anointed to do them. Even though he was empowered to do them. He couldn't do them because of the unbelief of the people. Here he answers the father and says, O faithless, that means without faith, generation. He doesn't answer the disciples that way. He talks to them later about their unbelief. But he's saying the reason that it didn't work from the disciples' point of view is because of your unbelief speaking to the father. Then the father tries to turn it around and says, well, Jesus, this is a real bad situation. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus turns it right back to him and says, if you can believe, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Now, if we take those scriptures and put them together, then we have to conclude that unless Jesus can get the father to believe, he can't get the healing anointing to work for his son. That has to be true, does it not? So he says to the Father, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Say that with me. All things are possible to him that believes. Now say this. I believe. So all things are possible with me. Now notice what Jesus is saying. And Jesus is a representation of the Father in everything that he said and did on the earth. Jesus is saying, as a representative of God the Father, the creator of the universe, the all-powerful, all-knowing God, seated on the throne in heaven, he's saying God's power is available to anybody that's willing to believe. 
no matter how impossible the situation looks. That'd have to be true, would it not? If you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Now turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 38. We know that Jesus heals the boy and and, um, we won't take time to read that. But the father responds with what I don't consider to be a great measure of faith. But he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And the fact that he said, Lord, I believe was enough for Jesus to, to use the power of God that he was anointed with to set the little boy free. Now, in Isaiah chapter 38, I want you to see this. You know that in the Old Testament, people were sick just like they are in the New Testament. You know that people were the same in the Old Testament as they were in the New Testament. You know God's the same in the Old Testament times as he is today. God doesn't change no matter what the time period is. People don't change. They're identically the same now as they were back in the Old Testament days. Sin and sickness are the same. Lying and cheating and stealing are the same in the Old Testament as they are in the New Testament. And we can learn a lot of things by looking at the example of Old Testament men who got results from God. Here's one of them. Isaiah chapter 38, verse 1. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. That means he was going to die from sickness. We don't know what the sickness was, but it was life-threatening. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came unto him and said, Thus saith the Lord, Set your house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. Now notice what, what, uh, what's his name? Notice what Hezekiah did. Isaiah the prophet is directed by the Lord to tell him this sickness is unto death. You're going to die. So he's got a double whammy going against him. Not only is he critically ill at the point of death, or at least on the way to death, but he's received a death sentence from the Lord. But what does Hezekiah do? Hezekiah turns his face to the wall. Now, what does that mean? Well, one thing it means is he looked away from his symptoms. He looked away from his circumstance. He looked away from his situation. And he looked away from Isaiah the prophet, too. He turned his face to the wall. He turned his face to the wall. Dr. Lillian Yeomans told a story about before air travel was the thing and was the way that people got across from Europe to America about how there was a famous preacher, Jonathan Parker. He was the the pastor of the city temple in London. Very famous church, very famous minister. And he was uh, on one of these ocean liners going across to minister from England to minister in the United States. Very famous guy. And uh, there were some young men on the voyage that found out that he was traveling on the ship too. And so they were very excited to, to meet this famous guy and they wanted to talk to him. And so it was a, took many days to go across the ocean. So they thought, well, this is great. We'll have plenty of time to talk to him and, and um, you know, just get to know him and pick his brain and that kind of stuff. But they didn't want to intrude upon him. And so they found him day after day, hour after hour, day after day just sitting on the deck looking out into the ocean. Not saying a word, not interacting with anybody, just sitting there looking. Well, this went on for several days, and finally one of the young men mustered up some courage and went over to him, didn't even introduce himself, but went over to him and said, Dr. Parker, what are you looking at? What do you see out there? Dr. Parker, without even looking in his direction, said, nothing but God. 
That's what Hezekiah did when he turned his face to the wall. He looked at nothing but God. He turned his face to the wall and he wept sore. Now, folks, you know as well as I do that we've all cried and prayed before. It's not just crying and praying that does the job. You've got a lot of church people that are crying, thinking that crying gets the job done, but it doesn't. But Hezekiah prayed earnestly from his heart. And notice what he said. He said, Lord, I've walked before you in truth and with a perfect heart. Notice he didn't say that he was perfect. He didn't say that he was always perfect or he never missed it. He said, I've got a perfect heart. I've walked before you in truth. The word of God is truth and with a perfect heart. Brother Hagin said something one time when I was in uh, Bible school, first year of Bible school, that really helped me along this line because uh, I get tripped up, used to get tripped up with uh, uh, where the, the Bible talks about being perfect. Even the New Testament says, be perfect as the Lord is perfect. Well, I know the things that I've messed up in and the places that I've missed it, and so that's always been a difficult concept for me. And once you miss it, the devil tells you, that's it, you're done for, you can't ever make it back, and that type of thing. Well, Brother Hagin said that he was in a meeting, I think it was in Kansas, and he was, it was in the afternoon, and he went over to the church to pray to get ready for the evening service. And while he was praying... He got to thinking about some things in the past and some places where he had made mistakes. And, uh, and the, like I said, these were things in the past. He said uh, that he was doing, he felt like he was doing really good at the time. But you know how things in the past will gnaw at you and, and so forth. The Bible says that those things that we've done, even the things that we've done wrong are under the blood of Jesus. Ma- uh, Micah chapter 7 verse 19 says that God drowns them in the sea of forgetfulness. Someone also said concerning that verse of scripture that what God drowned in the sea we shouldn't go fishing for. But being human we do sometimes. And that's what he was doing. He was reminding the Lord about things that he'd done in the past and places that he missed it and, and talking to God about how sorry he was for those things. And if you dwell on the past like that it'll hinder you from growing and going forward in God. So the Lord brought his to, to, spoke to him and brought it to his attention the story in 1 Samuel chapter 16 when uh, Samuel the prophet went down to anoint David as king. All the Lord had told, uh, told Samuel to do was anoint one of the sons of Jesse to be the next king in Saul's place. Well, he went down, told uh, David's father to bring his sons in before him. So he started with the oldest, whose name was Eliab, I believe. And boy, I guess Eliab was a big, tall, good-looking kid. And uh, Samuel looked at him and said, boy, this has got to be the one. He's got the king look. Well, remember, Saul had the king look too, and that didn't work out too well. And the Lord spoke to Samuel and said, he's not the one. I've rejected him. He said, look not on his outward countenance. For man looks on the outward appearance, but I look on the heart. And the Lord spoke to Brother Hagin about the things that he was reminding the Lord of or talking to him about, things in the past. And he said, I know you made mistakes from a physical standpoint. He said, but that's the only way that you're looking at it. You're looking at it from a physical position, from a physical perspective, temporal perspective. And he said, you just see the things that you did wrong in the flesh. But I look on your heart. And I saw that your heart was right all the time, even though you were making a mistake. 
So I wrote it down that your heart was perfect toward me. Well, Brother Hagen, I, I never heard him tell this, but a couple of times in all the years that I was around him and had association with him. And the reason for that is because every time he'd tell it, he'd become overwhelmed with emotion. And he wasn't a person to show very much emotion. And so, um, but he, he would relate the story each time that I heard it. He said that it was, it was so real to him that he just wept before the Lord. It had such an impact on him. Well, that helped me because the times that I've missed it, I have missed it from my heart. I've missed it out of my flesh. I've stumbled over my flesh plenty of times, more times than I'd like to count. Thank God I don't have to keep counting. Thank God he's not keeping count. But where David is called a man after God's own heart, David messed up in his flesh too, didn't he? Now, when David messed up and committed adultery with Bathsheba, then had her husband killed to cover up his sin and so forth, God didn't say of David, he used to be a man after my own heart, but now that's done for. Now that's all changed. David was still a man after God's own heart. So it's not just the things that we make mistakes in and things that we do that are wrong in the flesh. That's not the thing that makes the difference. That's what Hezekiah is saying here in Isaiah 38. He's not saying I've never missed it. He's not saying I've always been perfect. But he says I've walked in truth and with a perfect heart. My heart's always been right. My heart's always been right. Now notice what kind of praying, this kind of praying does for you. Verse 4. He said, Then came the word of the Lord to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David, thy father, I have heard thy prayer and I've seen thy tears. Behold, I will add unto thy days 15 years. Before Isaiah even gets out of the courtyard, the word of the Lord comes to him again and says, Okay, things are different now. Now, some people will say that God changed his mind and so therefore you can't trust the Bible to be the inspired word of God and so forth. But that's not what took place at all. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, the, the Bible says specifically that God said, Set your house in order for you're going to die and not live. But he didn't die. He lived. So the Bible can't be true. Well, sure it's true. God had Isaiah prophesy to him what was going to happen under the current circumstances, under the present conditions. But Hezekiah changed those conditions. He changed those conditions by turning his face to the wall and weeping before the Lord. He pled his case. Look with me over to Isaiah 43. Charles Finney said the best kind of praying is argumentative praying. Now, Finney was a lawyer by training. And so argumentative kind of praying came naturally to him. And it worked. He would tell the story about a person that, uh, that God connected with his ministry named Father Nash. He was an Episcopalian priest. And Father Nash was not a part of the ministry in any official capacity he wasn't hired didn't get paid for what he did or anything like that but he uh, would find out what charles finney's schedule would be and he would go ahead of him a week maybe two weeks ahead of where the city he was going to next or scheduled to go into and he'd just find a little room just rent a little room there place for him to stay and he'd just pray pray for the meetings that were going to take place well over a period of time charles finney after getting Tremendous results, some of the greatest revival results that this country's ever known. He heard about Father Nash, started hearing about him 
from several different sources, didn't know who this guy was, had never met him. And so he arranged to find out where Father Nash was going to be. And so he went to see what he was doing. Well, he introduced himself to Father Nash and said, I've heard that you've been going ahead of our meetings and praying. He said, well, yeah, the Lord told me to do that. He said, well, I want to pray with you. So Father Nash said, well, come on in. Just had a little, you know, one room, little place rented for the time that he's going to be there. And, uh, and Charles Finney started listening to the guy pray. He'd pray some too, but he really wanted to find out what Father Nash was doing. And he had a, a sense in his heart that the results that he was getting was not because he was such a great preacher, but had more to do with the prayers that went before the preaching ever began. So he said, I spent a lot of time listening to Father Nash pray. He said, I'd make a little bit of noise so he didn't think he was in there by himself. But he said, I was really paying attention to how he prayed. And he said, I would hear Father Nash say things like this. He said, now, Lord, you don't think we're not going to have revival here, do you? That's when Charles Finney began to say the best kind of praying is argumentative praying. Finney would write later on in his book, one of his books, his autobiography. Uh, Well, actually, it's not his autobiography. It's Lectures on Revival and Religion. It's one of those books that would choke a mule. It's kind of tough sledding through most of it, but, boy, there's some places that just are rich, rich, rich with information. He said that he learned from Father Nash how to pray. Changed his prayer life. Totally changed his prayer life. So he'd say the best kind of praying is argumentative praying. Now, you might say, what is argumentative praying? Well, Isaiah 43 defines it. Verse 25, God said, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. Verse 26, put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Now, if any's training as a lawyer, that got his attention. Let us plead together. He knows about how lawyers plead their case in court. So he said, put me in remembrance. God said, put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Argumentative praying is where you present your case before God. That's what Hezekiah did when he turned his face to the wall. He said, Lord, you remember. Now, you can read the story of Hezekiah throughout the scripture, the Old Testament. You'll find out there's several places where he messed up big time. But he turned his face to the wall and he said, before, said to the Lord, Lord, you remember how I've walked before you in truth and with a perfect heart. He pled his case before the Lord and the Lord heard him. Added 15 years to his life. Added 15 years to his life. Now there's other places and people in the Old Testament that we can see as an example of people that turned their face to the wall, saw nothing but God. One is Noah. Noah was instructed of the Lord that destruction was coming upon the earth. There was a flood that was coming that was going to destroy the earth. But there's a lot of things he could have looked at and a lot of things he could have done. But he turned his face to the wall and looked only to God and built the ark as he was instructed to do. And he was saved by the ark, went into the ark, and it became a refuge for him, which is a type of Jesus, an Old Testament type of Jesus, and saved him and his family. Another example is Moses. Moses came down from Mount Sinai carrying the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone, and he found that the people had had demanded of Aaron that he make them a golden calf so they could worship it. 
Moses gets upset, breaks the tablets of stone, gets onto the people, and then God says to Moses, he says, stand back. He said, I'm going to destroy the people and blot their name out of my book and start over with you. Now, folks, put yourself in Moses' position. That's not a bad spot to be. God's going to start over with you. That'd make you the big cheese, wouldn't it? But Moses turns his face to the wall and says, no. If you're going to blot their name out, blot mine out too. And God says, then I won't blot out anybody's. He didn't look at the golden calf. He didn't look at the sins of the people. He didn't even look at how Aaron had failed him. He turned his face to God and saw only him. Another example is David. You remember the story of David at Ziklag, the city where he kept all of his spoil before David became king, just before he became king of Israel. Tells us that when David was out in a raiding party with his army, they came back and found that the Amalekites had burned the city, taken all the stuff, kidnapped all their families. And the men that were with David, known for their loyalty, were so so grieved by the situation so distraught about what happened that they wanted to stone David like it was his fault. But the Bible says that David encouraged himself in the Lord. That's where he turned his face to the wall. He didn't look at the desire of the people to kill him. He didn't look at the destruction that had been done to the city. He didn't look at the fact that they had lost all their possessions. He didn't even look at the fact that their, their families had been kidnapped. He turned his face to the wall and saw only God. God gave him instruction of what to do to pursue the enemy. They did, had a great victory and gained many, many, many spoils and regained all the family members and everybody that had been taken without harm. Another example is in Romans chapter 4 where it tells us about, about Abraham. It says that Abraham, who against hope, believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Now, remember when Abraham got to an age, he was about 100 years old, where it was impossible for him to have children. Sarah was 90. It was impossible for her to have children. That's when God said, now I'm going to make good my promise to give you a child. Abraham first laughed. Then later on, a few months later, Sarah laughed at the idea. But God asked him a question that's a very, very important question. He asked this. He said, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? In other words, is anything impossible with God? It's impossible for something to be impossible with God. Now think about what that means. Since it's impossible for something to be impossible with God, that means it's impossible for something to be too big for you to believe for. Because all things are possible to him that believes. Augustine was a 6th century bishop. He tells a story about a man that was a Carthaginian noble. He was a nobleman of Carthage. He had suffered many things of many physicians. Like the woman with issue of blood. He'd had several operations. Scheduled for another one. There was diseased tissue in his flesh. But nobody was holding out any hope for any positive results from the next operation that that he was scheduled for. 
Augustine came into where the man was, went to visit him, came into where he was, planned to pray for his healing. That's what he was going there for. And he said, as soon as he got into the room, he said, this man violently threw himself onto the floor. He said, actually, he said it looked like he was knocked down. I don't know if the man did it for himself, laying prostrate, prostrate before the Lord, or if it was something the power of God knocked him over. I guess it could have been either one, but nobody knows for sure. But anyway, he said he began to violently shake on the floor. He began to weep, began to cry out unto the Lord. He began to speak about the goodness of God. He began to speak about how Jesus had taken his sicknesses and borne his infirmities. And with his stripes, he was healed. This went on for several minutes. And Augustine wrote in his journal, he said, I couldn't even pray. He said, this man was praying so fervently, so earnestly, so in such an extreme manner. He said, all I could do was say quietly to myself, Lord, if you don't answer this man's prayer, how can you answer anybody's prayer? Well, the doctor showed up a short time later, took the bandages off to prepare him for surgery, the operation that was scheduled. They found that the diseased tissue had healed itself or was healed. He was raised up. There's also a story that's told about Martin Luther. It's in his journals as well. Martin Luther went to visit a man that was sick, nigh unto death, a man that was helping him in the Protestant Reformation. His name was Philip. Luther went into the room, found him at the point of death. Luther didn't pray for him. He didn't touch him. He didn't lay hands on him. He turned away from the bed that the man was on and looked out the window. He quoted every scripture that he could remember about healing, about the goodness of God, about God's mercy. And as after, and this went on for several minutes, and after he finished, or as he was finishing praying, he said, now God, if you don't heal this man, I won't ever be able to trust you again. The man was instantly healed and raised up from that deathbed. Now that's not some wild-eyed Pentecostal preacher doing that. That's a Lutheran. That's how fervently he prayed. If you don't heal and answer, heal this man and answer this prayer, I'll never be able to trust you again. That's some kind of boldness to pray, wouldn't you agree? Jesus said to the father of the boy with the, that had the spells and the fits, he said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Now, folks, I don't want you to get the wrong impression about what I'm saying. I'm not saying if you cry enough, it's going to work. Abraham didn't, we don't have any record that Abraham cried with strong crying and tears or anything like Hezekiah did. Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God. So turning your face to the wall might manifest itself or appear or operate in different ways depending on who you are and the situation you're in. But it still comes down to the same thing. Turning your face away from everything that there is. And seeing nothing but God. If you can believe. All things are possible to him that believes. Say this after me. All things are possible. To him that believes. I believe God. I believe his word is true. I believe Jesus took my infirmities. And bore my sicknesses. And with his stripes I am healed. 
No matter what my condition, no matter what the doctor has said, I believe I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. I turn my face to the wall, Lord, away from the circumstance, away from my symptoms, away from the arm and the hand of man, and I see only you and the truth of your word. Amen. Praise the Lord. Nothing is impossible with God. And you're with God. Amen? Hallelujah. Well, thank you for being with us. We love you. You're dismissed.